so how long um does it, did it take for you to feel like your business had reached a level of stability i'd say 10 years roughly plus plus minus a little bit but that's a a, a very realistic number which uh is often overlooked yeah no very clearly in the early years there's you encounter cash flow problems because things don't happen in the time frame you had planned and yeah. you know that's part of i think that was part of learning it and had one had more advice or more knowledge in the business part of things maybe one could have avoided some of those stressful nights but yeah um i think project are so slow yeah you know when a building takes 3 4 years and you can do only so many at a time mm. uh i think it's reasonable to to allow for something like this to become stable only after good architecture like any creative practice is a product of the experiences of its creator an architect's work is directly impacted by experiences travel inspiring people difficult circumstances and so much more while these conversations are interesting in themselves it's all the more interesting when you drop someone with different life experiences into a new environment which brings me to my guest today architect neil schonfelder of mancini enterprises on everything comes together i'll be speaking with people in the broader photography architecture and design communities rather than only talking about their work we will be talking about them their personal journey the challenges they overcame and the most pivotal incidents in their lives that made them who they are today so now let's get to it Niels grew up in Germany, was exposed to art and architecture at a young age, moved to India through an internship, stayed back and built a successful career over the past 20 years. All of this is common knowledge already. During this interview, we explore his early years in Europe, the realities of running an architectural practice in India, and we discuss the concept of experiencing architecture and creating an architectural experience. In the interest of maximum COVID safety, this interview was recorded in the garden of Neil's workspace outside Chennai. It was a lovely experience shooting this interview under the trees, but you may hear more ambient sounds than normal. I just wanted to let you know that the Everything Comes Together podcast has a new home online at everythingcomestogether.com. You can watch full episodes to get the whole story. or you can watch a treasure trove of playlists on these playlists a variety of creators from across the country present their experiences and opinions on a set of topics to give you a complete understanding of the work you love find out more at everythingcomestogether.com i grew up in the northern parts of germany and uh, in a in a near a town called hanover and um there was no largely uneventful sort of suburban situation um but um we did have a nice exposure being close to the city to uh, a varied uh array array of cultural um you know events exhibitions museums concerts and and the like so that's a nice thing 
in, in um, those parts is that even smaller cities, what you would call uh, tier two cities in India, tier three cities, yeah. still have uh, a decent amount of uh, attention and funding for uh, the arts and the cultures. So that, that was very enjoyable that way. And did you get a chance to travel around and experience that art? Yeah, so you know, city would be 20 minutes away. You could easily go and hop and see an exhibition. Um, you could attend concerts, uh, things like that. That was it's a very natural part of your everyday life. Uh, also because it was very accessible to everybody. Students, uh, school yeah. kids, you know, everybody was uh, sort of enticed to make use of it by very uh, fair pricing and things like that. There was a very low barrier to all of that. Yeah. And so how, how did the, the cities manage to do so many, um, you know, public exhibitions? Were they publicly funded or are they pri all privately funded? You have it's both. not that common to see that, at least in this part of the world, right? Uh, well, I don't think it's it's fair to compare because the setups and the demographics are obviously completely different. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a mix of private and mostly public uh, funded mm. activity. And um, that uh, seems to, seems to even today still bear fruit for the creative uh, professions in general, you know, not just uh, architecture or, or um, um, artists, but uh, graphic design, typography. Most often these institutions or events would be actually commissioning uh, graphic design typography and would be a very good client to, to the private uh, ecosystem of, of the, of the yeah. creative arts. Yeah. Right. So, as you were going, so uh, you said you were near Hanover, which is closer to Hamburg. Two hours south of Two Hamburg. Hours, yeah. So, what was the sort? What was the sort of topography around that area where you grew up? Was it hilly? Um, was it mountainous? No, slightly hilly, sort of. Uh, you know, this was the this was the line where the glaciers of the Ice Age stopped, okay. coming coming down from north. Mm -hmm. So you had, at the end you have this the, the the soil which the glaciers pushed that formed our sort of little forest and hills like that. So it's like a craggy sort of... Not craggy, just soft hills like that, forests, yeah. So I'm asking you that because um, that would also have influenced the type of architecture you would see in the area, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, the local and the vernacular in that area are in the rural setting still uh, perceivable. Cities, of course, have been changed massively by, by the, the two wars, or well, the Second World War, most, most of it. Mm. And so you have a very young-looking city with beautiful examples of the 50s, 60s architecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, only little is left of uh, the pre-war uh, architecture. Mm. So, yeah. But it's still, uh, you know, interesting conservation efforts. Adaptive reuse was, is a very common sort of um, project type you would go and appreciate. Um, when you were young, were you able to appreciate this kind of architecture? Were you able to appreciate the art which was happening around you? Um, did that, were you uh, is that something that you were taught at a young age? Was that something you were exposed to in school? Yeah, to some extent, you know, obviously basics of it uh, and, and to the limits of, of age. But uh, I think it was a natural part to be for, for more or less everybody uh, 
to be exposed to some of that. Mm. So art class in school would include uh, some basics of architectural understanding, some basics of graphic design, art history, uh, things like that. And of course, the environment, travel, it's, it's normal to, uh, in your vacations to go and see, um, it used to be normal for us to go and see uh, archaeological sites, nice examples of architecture all over Europe, or, you know, wherever we could travel. I think it's quite interesting to see that you're exposed to that at a young age and it almost seems natural that somebody who is exposed to the right things when it comes to art and architecture, they sort of are able to translate that little bit easily once they grow older is at least what... Um, so I grew up in a creative household, mm. right? So my granddad, my dad and my mom, all of them... Uh, had their own various forms of creative process. So that's where I'm trying to draw a parallel um, between, you know, the environment that you grew up in. Did you have people in your family as well who were in a similar line to what you're doing now? A little bit. My, my grandmother had studied uh, what you would call here uh, commercial graphic art, like, a you know, um, graphic design really in the 20s. Um, my, her father, my great-grandfather, was a sort of building um, master, you would call it, a, a sort of contractor with the ability of planning and, and engineering rolled into one person. Um, of course, I never met him. Um, but, yeah, a little bit like that. And, and I think you're right. I mean, when it starts at a young age that this is a normal um, or a given in your everyday life, then it has a value just like other professions or other occupations also have. It doesn't stand apart. Yeah. And you don't have to sort of, uh, you know, question yourself or, yeah. or society around, is this of equal importance or not? It just naturally is yeah. equally important. Yeah, there's no, there's no questioning anything. So you, the decision is, it's the same, it's whether you do one line of work or you do another line of work, all of it is as natural. So, and uh, is that how it progressed for you as well to to move into architecture or were you interested in something else growing up? Yeah, I mean, school was, uh, say, manageable. And then uh, towards the end, it became very interesting in physics and mathematics. I had excellent teachers and that was really lucky. Okay. So I was hesitating, should I go in that more scientific direction? But then last minute, in a way, I decided to study architecture. Uh, maybe also because there was no fear of doing the wrong thing. Uh, at that time, it was still normal that you go into university, you do a semester or two, you figure it out, and if it's not for you, you change. And that was not frowned upon, or there was no problem with that. Hmm. So in that sense, uh, there was a nice freedom to say, okay. And that's okay, once you get into college. That's once you get into university, yeah. University, yeah. yeah. So it's university, and therefore, it's, from the beginning, it's a little bit more free. The course structure mm -hmm. is not really... Um, uh, as maybe as strict as college mm. in its schedule and its curriculum and it gives you therefore the options early on to say hey, I'm going to try this out this semester next semester I'm going to do that one but let's skip this one and so you get to discover on your own terms so I <clears throat> um, early on in the season um, of the podcast I spoke to uh, three architects from Chennai uh, well two from Chennai and another one uh, also from India 
all of whom studied are right now actually in the in Europe doing their masters mm-hmm. and all of them are studying through the pandemic so that was a conversation and um, they were talking about how especially um, um, the, the the architect who is studying in Germany was talking about how you can switch or take whichever course you want at different times so um, I assume that's what you're referring to where if you like a course from a different department you're free to yeah, in fact, you're encouraged to also go and see beyond architecture mm. in the larger university ecosystem. What does interest you? Yeah. And you could easily come back to your professors and say, hey, this uh, course of uh, in, in musical history mm. interests me. Can I do this semester? Can you give me some credits for it? And it would be an open discussion like that. And, and you could uh, more often than not, mm. uh, you know, really build your own uh, curriculum to your interests, including traveling during the during semester, saying that I'm going to go to this town or that town, study a particular architectural uh, configuration or an urbanistic uh, project and come back and present it to you. And that will count as my attending that particular semester. Yeah. So there was that kind of flexibility, which was, uh, I think, very inspiring for, for many of us. But that also, I think, makes you a little bit more of a well-rounded individual if you are allowed to roam free and explore whatever you want to explore. Um, so, um, after school, after uh, when you were going to university, you studied at the University of uh, Darmstadt. That's right. And so, I've obviously heard of that university because it seems to have had a huge number of really notable alumni from science and la- a whole bunch of Nobel laureates, if I'm right. Oh, is that so? Right. Um, so, no, but what what is it about a certain university or college or a school that, you know, is able to churn out people who are able to consistently excel over the, over the generations almost? They must be doing something different, right? So, did you, what was your experience like there? Were they, was this particular university doing something different to help you grow? Because it's sort of like giving you the right atmosphere to, sure. to study in, right? Sure, sure. Well, I think it's, uh, I think as a general explanation to this is that the universities are, of course, all publicly funded in, uh, in Germany, very few exceptions. And, uh, but the the mandate lies with the state to to fund these universities, mm-hmm. and it is uh, commonly a uh, common rule that these universities and their professors have the uh, the liberty to decide their curriculum uh, without seeking approval whatsoever from the state or from the ministry. So this is a this is a very open system. So the university therefore feels the pressure mm. when they have to replace a professor when you know somebody retires and they have to find somebody new. There's a very interesting process of finding the right person for your university team right. who would fit in and you know re-energize or, or turn into a different direction the entire uh, overall ecosystem. And that's interesting that way. And I think that inspires students to think of their topics in a similar way. Yeah. That this is self-motivated. It's driven by your capabilities and interests and I think it has a trickle-down effect and it, right. I do think it works in certain size universities 
I think uh, sometimes when I look at smaller colleges, I do feel there's a problem of scale as well. When the college becomes too small, while there are undeniably great advantages of having you know, closer contact with your teachers, uh, but I do think then there is a certain call it cosmopolitan aspect yeah. to that, to the place and to the group of people which then lacks. And I think that's, at least for me, that was super important. Right. And um, so was your, was your university on the smaller scale or was it a larger space? The university as a, as a whole, I think, is a reasonable average size in, in Germany. Um, you call these towns university towns because the population knows or that the society of town knows that sustained by the university sustained by the students you know when there right. are 10 20000 students in one city mm. then they have uh, you know they take part in public life yeah. and in commercial life as well yeah. so you know exhibitions restaurants uh, pubs all of that uh, thrives on on the young uh, population right and what was what was your what was your experience at university did you um, did you enjoy it? I mean, school obviously wasn't that great an experience, right? School wasn't, uh, no, it wasn't bad, but you know, not to be compared with university. It was a very uh, great course to study. I think it's one of the most interesting uh, courses, I feel, because you really get to do so many different things. It's not just a cerebral part of engineering mathematics, but you also work with your hands, you do sculpture, you do drawings, you do painting, uh, you travel, you have to travel. Um, and and that all of that put together was uh, very inspiring for for us. So when um, since you said it was a last minute decision to to move from physics and mathematics to architecture, did you feel like you had some some background to fall back on in terms of like sketching and understanding proportions and space and things like that? Yes, no. I think, you know, there come into play more your, your silent background of those many years of being exposed a little bit here and there, mm -hmm. growing over the years like that to some of these aspects, right. be it in travel or be it in school. But I don't think the mathematical aspect had anything to do with it. Yeah. I don't think the sciences were that foundational for, for this particular course. Right. I mean, you needed them, yeah. you know, for the structural design courses and things like that. Yeah. But uh, the overall understanding of space, proportion and the sensibilities, I think lie more in the, maybe in the world of art than in the world of engineering. I don't know, maybe. But it's sort of like a mix, right? So architecture, um, so as someone who is not an architect and is looking at it from the outside in, it seems to me like there is a healthy amount of engineering and art sure. and you know, understanding the, you know, the area around the building as well. So every one of your interests um, that's given to you because of the way the system is set up and also the way that, uh, the way you absorb what's around you, it sort of really helps you put that together when you, when you do architecture. Yeah, I think not to be underestimated is also the, the manual part. Mm. Uh, that's not about engineering, it's more about commonsensical and, and you know, physical experience with yeah. building something. Yeah. So as part of that particular university course, you were required to go and work actually with the building crafts, I think for four months or so. And so you become an intern in a, in a I was an intern in a, in a carpentry workshop oh, nice. for, for buildings. So you get to, you know, you have to sweep the workshop and you have to carry the 
the heavy stuff. Yeah. Um, but you get to know how a construction site works. Yeah. And you get to know the practicalities and the, and the culture of building, really, a little bit, which I think is not to be underestimated in that, in that mix of engineering, art, and let's call it craft for a, for a lack of a better yeah. uh, common name for it, commonsensical sort of building, feeling for building. But that, that really gives you, um, you're, not, you're not leaving your architecture course only knowing you know, how to design a building. You understand the practicalities and that makes a big difference when you're out in the real world. Some of it, obviously you don't, you know, you no, don't. It's a taste. Yeah. yeah, some of it, yeah. You have an inkling. You just mentioned um, the internship that you did at a, at a carpentry studio. Or yeah, it's like a, a proper, you know, a company, site. a building construction company, yeah. providing like roof structures and uh, you know staircases and things like that in wood. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, where else did you intern um, while you were at university? Uh, so we had the, that internship, and then I went at some point to France to do some internships there mm -hmm. uh, to also get a different perspective on the profession and of you know try to learn a bit more of the language, things like that, and. Uh, that brought me to first to the south of France and then eventually to Paris. And uh, that's also where I met then my then boss who had connections with Pondicherry, um, Eric Lo Cicero. And uh, in fact, it's via him that I ended up in India uh, for an internship to work here for two, three months. And I was supposed to go back to, to Paris, but I never did, stayed back. <laughs> so what made you it's a pretty big switch, right? So what made you want to do that? Yeah, you know, maybe it's you're young adventurers and you're, it's exciting to just see different cultures and then see them also professionally, not just travel around as a, you know, the free bird and not being involved. But when you do construction, you're very involved. Yeah. And then you, you sort of immerse yourself in a local culture very quickly and get to know about it and, and uh, meet people you wouldn't be meeting as, as a tourist. And that was just highly fascinating. And it's a, maybe one of the richest countries in the world in terms of culture and, and heritage. And, and all that put together made me stay. Absolutely. Um, what, was, uh, what was like your first impression, you know, when you came here? What was that experience like? Because I, I suppose if you were, if you started off the process by coming here to design and then build you know, I, I, this was a hotel in Pondicherry. That's right? right. So, you would have at least had some lead-in time. I assume that if you were coming here as an intern, you would have come in and straight away gotten down to the construction work as well. Or That's right, yes. I mean, the basic drawings were done. The design idea was done, mm. but none of the details were really figured out. And so, that, that's what I did. So, like, come hit here, the figure the details. Yeah, needed. exactly. Hit the ground running and, and learn as you go along, learn to communicate with you know, local workforce and, and every other stakeholders, engineers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, what, what was that? How did that project turn out? What kind of a building was it? It was a, um, a heritage building in the, what they call the White Town in Pondicherry. And it used to be the mayor's house of, of Pondicherry. And the uh, investors who became good friends had a plan to turn it into a small hotel. Okay. And that's what we did. It was extended on top by some very beautiful um, woodwork, heritage woodwork from 
Duplex's house, the governor, French governor Duplex in the 18th, 19th century. And so the hotel was called the Duplex yeah. because of that. And that was a sort of the right product in the right size for somebody who would come in and, and discover very much manageable, not too big, yeah. but also very challenging in, in detail and quality. Mm -hmm. And so it was a beautiful uh, way of um, starting to work in India. Yeah. But uh, you know, the ex uh, was the other architect, the architect whom you were interning under, were they here as well at that time? We came together and he stayed a, a week or two or three, I don't remember. And uh, then from there on, we took it on and, and finished it over the, it took two years then to do it. Yeah. So, you, you have, your you, you obviously have a, a practice that's doing well here and you must be getting people who want to intern with you. Right? We do. So, um, is there one, is there anything that you would tell any intern or any young architect joining up somewhere? What would, what should they be looking for? It's not about just one thing, right? It's what do you take away from an internship? What do you take away from even like an early job, one of the early jobs that you do? Well, I, I think in the first couple of years, really, it should be about trying to figure out what kind of architectural environment is the right environment for you. Mm. Because there's so many different valid architectural studios out there, so many kinds of projects, yeah. right? If you get involved in big and heavy infrastructure, you work in a completely different world yeah. compared to, uh, let's say, small residential jobs where it's a much more, um, uh, you know, shielded and you know, private and domestic world mm. where you have a couple of uh, team members um, whereas you know in bigger buildings infrastructure you have hundreds of people involved in one project and so that is really extremely different as a work environment I think it's good to be honest with oneself and try to get internships in different environments to to see these differences and figure it out what works for oneself yeah get different experiences and yeah then see what really what you really exactly. like okay coming back to your your journey now so at this point you have made the move from from germany or through france to india hmm. and um, how did uh, how old were you when you did that i came i was 25 i think and how did your family react uh, my family was okay i mean they had already an inkling that i wouldn't be you know staying too close to home uh, I think they were somewhat expecting I think it's it. It's quite different <laughs> when you move halfway around the world. It's <laughs> yeah, but uh, we were all, we are all travelers in the family, enjoying that part. And so I think it was a given that I would be moving around a little bit to, you know, for that for that reason to really initially enjoy the different cultures and the adventure of that. Okay, so after you're done with your internship um, and the, build, the, the, the hotel that you guys were working on got ready and you stayed back in India, what happens next? Do you start working here on your own? Do you travel around? Yeah, I traveled around while I was doing that, of course, in all of South India. Um, it's fantastic how you can get around in a public bus for close to, you know, nothing and you see and meet the most interesting people. So I did that and um, there was enough work around there because obviously I'd met people and the um, 
investor in the project, Dimitri, Dimitri Klein in, in Pondicherry had more work. So I started with that. Yeah. And then it was very gradually, slowly hiring one person, another person and, uh, you know, building a little studio like that. Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, I, I assume it, um, you worked with partners while you were here. Yes. So what was, what was it like partnering with people for the first time? That too came naturally, really. Mm. Um, I met my partner, in fact, on the first construction site. He was working for one of the um, suppliers on the, at that time, and then later we partnered. And um, I think it's a profession where you can easily figure out what works between um, different personalities because you have this common language of drawings and, and you always have something to focus around. Um, it's not about emails or corporate um, abilities. It's yeah. about designing, getting a beautiful job done and, and being extremely practical really. It's an, it's an applied art, right? And uh, it's really applied, takes the, takes very often, takes the, um, it's at the forefront. And so that uh, came very natural to us and, and we have never had any regrets that way. Um, so, okay, so everyone, anyone who's starting a business and especially a creative business when you don't have a huge deal of experience under you, finding work is the hardest part, right? Or finding work that you really enjoy. Mm. So how did you go about doing that, you and your partners? How did you go about finding interesting projects to work on? Or were they more bread and butter projects to start off? I think we had um, luck, of course. Right. Um, but you also have the opportunity to turn a bread and butter job into something really interesting. Mm. Uh, especially in... in in this area of um, of work, um, because the rules are not written in stone, or the expectations, let's say, of clients or investors are not uh, 100% fixed all the time, you can bring your ideas to the table and say, hey, why don't we do it this way or that way, yeah. um, and start a conversation, engage with um, those who invest in architecture, and see what your role can be and sort of mold your role a little bit to the project and, and vice versa. Right. And that's maybe one advantage of practicing in India is that, that you still have this flexibility. Um, it's not as flexible in Europe because you have much older structures, much more uh, preconceived notions and much more uh, legal framework as well, um, which makes it a little bit harder to do. But um, did, you, did you like that freedom when you came here? Yeah, I think it's enjoyable. You know, you need to. It demands a lot of self-motivation to make the best of it. Yeah. But it's certainly uh, enjoyable. Yeah. Is it hard to stay motivated? No. Or was it hard to stay motivated no, no. for you? I'm sure it's the same for you. I mean, you get to define a shoot. I imagine. Yeah. You get to define the outcome of your work with the clients as much as architects get to do it with their clients. You know. Sure, um, but you know, for me at least, uh, when I was starting off, I was, uh, when I started working, I was 19. And um, I probably looked 16. So the biggest problem was when I would meet potential clients and 
they were very concerned by what i uh, you know how old i was or whether i had that level of experience um and that was a problem so the kind of work that i was getting early on was very basic very rudimentary mainly only um uh you know simple interior projects where i didn't get much freedom to do what i wanted i didn't get much time to shoot so it was hard to stay a bit motivated by that you know that's why i was asking you because some of the other architects that i have spoken to have said that um um when they were starting off as well they weren't getting really exciting projects to work on i think we had a mix of projects and certainly there was there were those who you call bread and butter yeah but uh, because it's not difficult to get things done you even in those ones you learn yeah you know you learn they add up to experience yeah slowly over the years and and that way they have their their place on your portfolio yeah doesn't mean you know that there are no low points there are you know yeah. when it when it hits you and that you know budgets may not be as you had imagined or you know whatever it may delays may not pan out or uh you did not get as much time as you wanted for the design but still i do think it's a it's part of the applied part of arts right yeah, yeah. so when once you start finding work uh to start off and um you need to obviously find more in order to grow um how how did you guys start getting more work going so and this was you started the you started manchini which is what we are talking about now in 2004 and um at that time i guess most people weren't online and there was no instagram um which i think we can talk briefly about after this but um how did you go about trying to get new work what what's the first step it really for us it really came from word of mouth and it still does today um so there was no at some point we had a website of course a uh, small one and still have a small one only um but it seems that when you do even small work small jobs interiors whatever it is and you do them with honesty and you do them to the best of your capacities then people take note and you will get one more phone call or two more phone calls and not everything converts into of course a next project but in essence the word is out there and and um we grew very 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 slowly there was yeah. no you know there was no um there was moment no of, of that propelled no forward. it was really really very gradually and that's it's i think it's natural to our profession because it's such a slow profession mm-hmm. every project does take a fair amount of time and it's more yeah mostly longer than what uh clients think in the beginning uh and so that slow growth also seems more sustainable do you feel yeah i i do think it has to you know, patience is required for it yeah. it sometimes it appears a little bit um frustrating mm. um but i do think it's a sort of prudent profession or a conservative profession in a way that you cannot but actually handle on client's behalf a lot of money 
buildings cost a lot of money. And therefore, clients tend to be caught between those two poles. I'm spending all this money. I want to be careful with it. I want to make sure it's the right thing. Mm. And that is a natural instinct to say that, how can I make sure my investment in this building is, is safe enough? Yeah. On the other hand, the client also would like to that investment to yield the change in their lives, be it personal or be it professional, in a new office building or a new home, yeah. they would like it to yield some sort of change. And that requires creativity and that requires uncertainty. Yeah. And so those are the two poles and the architects between. Yeah. And you have to sort of balance that. And that just takes a lot of time. And, and uh, um, you know, when that gets exposed now to the fact that uh, a large chunk of our construction industry is unorganized, um, then you have a lot of moving parts. And for that puzzle of moving parts, you just need patience. I think so. The minute something moves slow, uh, as a business, I mean, but were, were you comfortable with that rate of growth or were you hoping that things would move faster? I can tell you why I'm asking hmm. you this question. Um, there are a lot of people who for various reasons, either financial considerations or their own level of patience, right? They, they want quick growth. They want to make a good amount of money very quickly, which is obviously everyone sure. wants that. But were you comfortable with that level of growth? Were you expecting something else? Um, I frankly didn't know what to expect. Uh, my upbringing was not in a, in a family of business people, so I hadn't, I did not really have any background in, in the business aspect of it. And so maybe I just was naive enough not to, not to know what to expect. And therefore, uh, we were so engrossed in the content of our work, in the day-to-day -day activities, that uh, you know, we rarely took the step back to say, are we growing fast enough or not? It was never the question, really. Right. Uh, just, it went on and uh, it happened to be an upward trend, a slow one, but an upward trend. And so we were you know, happy with that. Yeah. Now, um, after speaking to you a few years ago, I, I mean, it, it was very clear to me that uh, you are, you're a pretty, you're, you're a good photographer and you're passionate about it. And um, was that something that helped having the quality of images um, available to you? I think the quality of images of your work is extremely important mm. and maybe becomes only more important uh, with social media and things like that. Uh, I'm by no means a professional photographer, but I know I have knowledge of the basics. I yeah. did have my own dark room and in my youth and did develop film and prints myself. Um, and so, yeah, sure, I, I do think it helped me to frame some of the work in uh, simple and straightforward ways and, and communicate, therefore, what we were able to do. Yeah. I think it's very important to spend energy and time on it. And there are many ways of doing it. Um, it doesn't have to be always self-initiated. Um, you can also hire professionals, but it certainly plays a big role in, at the very least, to document your work and have archives. Yeah. So where did you learn, where did you pick up photography? Is that something just 
you picked up along the way in school or at university uh, or yeah no it's for school as a school kid my mother was photography uh, was doing photography in as a hobby really yeah and uh, and so i you know just came to it like that and then we got this little dark room and started experimenting and that is fascinating uh, yeah. a fascinating thing to do spending your nights uh, endless right there's yeah. always something new that you can try and yeah and so it's explore. really creative because you have everything is on your fingers and then the chemicals and uh, you you adjust a little bit and the entire image changes so yeah. it's uh, it's more engaging i feel than digital because there is a physical feedback to it um do you still shoot um film no unfortunately not i would love to but no time for it do you still shoot your projects yeah most of them many of them yeah and um how do you feel your approach to the photography as an architectural photographer i'm curious what has your approach to shooting your own spaces your own buildings has it changed from from earlier to now um a little bit i don't i won't say drastically i think we i default to the basics to say okay let's first get the main axis done the facades and all the whether it's inside or outside the room uh main axis or or the project main axis and then try to uh look a little bit at the diagonal vistas but um yeah maybe now right we're trying to be a little bit less wide and you know try to avoid the the very wide lenses a little bit and try to get a bit more depth mm. by restricting the frame but more details a little well. bit more details but uh, you know we're not professionals so we're just going yeah, about I mean, it our you know but that's interesting right i mean everyone uh, shooting architecture from the from the perspective of the person who designed the space is uh, different from shooting architecture as a photographer itself yeah well, i don't think it's the best thing to do actually because you're so married to the way you've drawn it and now that everything's also in 3d models you know our 3d team um has also a very sort of clear understanding of volumes and proportions and even the camera angles because they also have cameras in their software and yeah. and they render it in particular frames so yeah. and often now in fact our um, our head of 3d um harry is often shooting now so he sometimes goes and recreates exactly his renderings yeah. when the project is done Yeah. uh which is a nice thing to compare the the rendered and the actual but um i think it's actually missing to have a photographer's eye yeah. come to the process and uh, question a little bit the uh, you know the convictions of the architects who think that it should be looked at only like that yeah yeah so that's missing a little bit so let's get back to um talking about um your work right and there's just one thing when it comes to the business that i want to um, ask you about we talked about this and i think it's something really uh, important to to discuss which is how long you said it was it's slow progress right so how long um does it, did it take for you to feel like your business had reached a level of stability i'd say 10 years roughly plus plus minus a little bit but that's a a, a very realistic number which uh, so. is often overlooked yeah no very clearly in the early years there's 
you encounter cash flow problems because things don't happen in the time frame you had planned. And yeah. you know, that's part of, I think that was part of learning it. And had one had more advice or more knowledge in the business part of things, maybe one could have avoided some of those stressful nights. But yeah. um, I think projects are so slow. Yeah. You know, when a building takes three, four years, and you can do only so many at a time. Mm. Uh, I think it's reasonable to to allow for something like this to become stable only after. And I think that also calls for a level of um, patience in, in uh, patience and tempered expectations, right? And I think that um, uh, at least I feel that something having those expectations more realistic expectations about rate of growth sort of helps you stay calmer that allows you to probably do better work because you're not constantly worried about you know how much of a profit you're making year upon year yeah no i think it's important it's important that you don't lose the uh the focus on the actual topic which is the design and the quality of all of that over concerns from the business side of it. It just never pays back. If you start cutting corners because you want to go faster, yeah. uh, I don't think that's viable in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I've um, read a few interviews that you've done over the years. And um, one thing that you talk about is um, that you've always had a variety of work, variety of projects to work on. Um, so, just very briefly, could you tell me what are the kind of projects that you work on on the day-to-day -day here? Uh, yeah, it's still a very wide variety. It's um, from, of course, private commissions, um, houses, gardens, things like that, interiors for houses, private um, interiors, as well as office buildings. Uh, we have done a little bit of, uh, in collaboration with good friends from Auroville, Done a bit of uh, landscape projects focused around eco restoration. Yeah. Larger projects, 60, 70 acres. Um, we have done a little bit of public building. Yeah. Um, and uh, we do that all over India and, and abroad as well. Right now we have two projects in the US um, where we do, again, different things landscape and residential. And uh, at times we do work for developers, uh, commercial buildings. As so well. how do you manage the projects which happen outside India? Do you have people, do you, do you take a local architect, work with them? Uh, no, in this case we haven't. There's a very good contracting team okay. who are very well set up and they themselves in fact employ architects in-house and so that works very well. Okay. So where I was getting at is, so with all this diverse set of projects that you work on, do you feel like there's one connecting thread between them in your approach or in the style of projects that you, uh, the style of work that you do? Is there something that you feel is like a, a connecting thread between the varied typography? I don't know if you always succeed, but the desire of course is to find what is important for that particular project and to put the finger on that. And it's not just on the surface. You have to try and dig down a little bit and see what really would make 
the biggest difference to the task at hand experiencing architecture or the experience within any building or any space is an intangible thing um as let's say uh, i'm not talking about from the architect's point of view i'm talking about from anyone visiting a space you it's not you can't always put a finger on what you feel when you're going through a certain space right it's it's about the mood it's about the materials it's about and it's how you design the space that gives that mood to the person walking through it um do you deliberately try to imbue certain qualities into your architecture is it something that you like to go for yeah sure you have to have goals to know how yeah. to design right so how do you how do you how how do you um realize those goals from an intangible thing to a physical object well that's where we try to bring to fruition in a way our experiences as as physical beings right and our experiences as professionals with knowledge about the rules of the art if you can call it like that yeah uh and you combine that the rules of the art or theory or or things you would have learned formally with the things you learn informally by just being a perceptive uh human using space yeah and we all have that right if you go to a restaurant you will know in a fraction of a second which table you ideally would like to sit on yeah in that given space very instinctive it's very instinctive and has yes. something to do with our bodies and the way we behave in public when others are around yeah. and that's uh, you know i'm sure there's some sort of primordial instincts play into that yeah. um but i do think that the architecture happens when you combine it yes exactly you know, combine yes. that part with the learned part of uh, you know of proportion of art of history of art history of architecture uh, archaeology uh, engineering and all of that plays into it and so i think that gives you somewhat like a toolbox where you know that if the emotions or the reactions you would like to uh, favor i don't think you can provoke them for sure yeah. you can't be sure about it but you could favor certain um um reactions in the in the user mm. then you know that you have to do it this way or that way right right the so, the height or the space the amount of space the proportion of how much is left next to my shoulder when i pass through a um passage yes you know it's all uh it all is very mundane it's all inches and centimeters and this material that material doesn't sound very poetic yeah. but when it's all put together it it better be <laughs> and that's the same for um photographing architecture as well um so when i teach workshops um it's a lot about looking at what time of year it is so you know exactly where the sun is going to be and how long are the shadows going to be what's the color of the sunlight going to be at that mm-hmm. point of time um and also like when you stand in a certain place how much of your field is going to be in focus there's so many things it's sort of is like um uh it's it's sometimes like watching these behind the scenes um clips of mm. how movies are made with great special effects you suddenly see there is a process to it and, and well that it sort of takes the magic out but the magic is actually that process mm. in itself 
I think um, it's a very good uh, analogy, the, the movies. I often think about it a little bit like a soundtrack in a movie, in fact, yeah. right? The architecture we, in, uh, we experience most of the time really is background, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you may be good at your job, you may have a family problem, you may have a family celebration, whatever it is, and the architecture melts in the background, but it's there. And yeah. uh, it influences uh, just uh, in small ways what's happening. Yeah. And then now and then it kind of jumps into the foreground a little bit when you start noticing it or does something good to you, just like you may recognize a song in a movie yeah. or, you, you know, so the soundtrack, which is noises and, and, and a soundscape really. Yeah. But a soundtrack also is music and composition. So it's a little bit like that. Uh, and I, I enjoy that to be able to say, no, you're going to stay in the background here. For this project, we're not going to do, we're not going to bring out the big fireworks. Mm. We are going to uh, riff on the vernacular, or the, you know, that way we're going to stay in the background and let life have its space. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes you need to bring it all out, the fireworks. I'm sure that's a similar thing for you. Sometimes yeah, you, you know, go after I, a big shot. I never shot. thought of it as music, but um, when you... So, so I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of these conversational style of podcasts like what we're doing now, they have a very soft, neutral music playing in the background. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is I've noticed that they use the soft, neutral music when the guest is talking about something that's really happy. Mm -hmm. And they use the same soft, neutral music when they're talking about a very somber time in their lives. Or they talk, they use the same thing when they're talking about how their business just crashed and burned, right? But because it's so neutral, it sort of takes on the flavor of the conversation and the music suddenly, the same neutral music becomes somber, becomes cheerful, becomes inspirational. Hmm. And I think that's, uh, so when you talk about architecture being like the soundtrack, it's like um, whether you're going through happy times or sad times, or you know jubilant times great success or failure you're you're probably going to be living in the same house and the house takes on whatever um whatever your mood is right it's it's almost like it, that's almost tangible when you walk into a, a room that's happy or sad yeah. you, you feel it um and i think that also has a lot to do with the quality of light within the space um so, how, do you, uh, what's, uh, what is your approach to quality of light? Because um, the reason at the beginning of the interview I asked you about, um, you know, what kind of, what kind of a place was where you grew up? Because the quality of light, natural light there is really different from how it is here. Um, how do you try and bring in that? Because I've noticed that in your in the interiors of your buildings, there is a very soft white quality of light, um, which is quite different from a lot of uh, places that you go to, right? Larger, more horizontal windows, longer windows where there's more light coming in, but it seems a bit more diffused. Um, obviously, that is intentional. So what's your approach to lighting a space? It's interesting what you say. I'm not sure if it comes from, but maybe it does come from the, uh, you know, your experience of different light conditions in different parts of the world. Uh, I often think that, at least here in South India or many parts in India, we often have too much light. Um, and if you move the window out 
and let it receive direct sunlight, and it's a big window because you may want views or you know, whatever it is, you just generate such a high contrast between your internal surfaces and the bright window yeah. that everything burns out. And you want, I often feel one wants to get a little depth to the opening so that um, the transition is not as contrast, not as, not as stark, not as, not as harsh on the eye. And so, uh, you know, how do you shade it? The landscape plays a huge role. A tree can do that job nicely yeah. placed. Or, and so that's, it is important to us. Um, I think it's one of the big prime concerns we have is the light, natural and artificial. So pretty much like in your yeah. field, the light really, a project well lit is, and, and of mediocre quality itself is still better than a great project badly lit. Um, so you know what I really like to uh, so there are times when I'll get to see buildings um, when they're under construction so they don't have the window frames mm. they don't have the blinds they don't have curtains they don't have anything inside them and I find the, the quality of light there sometimes is better than when everything is in place when you have no obstruction and no filtration of the light coming in mm. I mean that's what yeah I, it's, a, it's, a huge, it's complex huge topic and it's, it's fascinating. Sometimes there are lighting designers involved, yeah. um, which is also very interesting because they have a complete different take on it. Yeah. Um, it's a more, more, mostly more technology driven, and that's interesting too. Uh, yeah, but even the basic architectural moves of you know, shading devices, mm -hmm. um, fabrics, I think, are often undervalued in that, in that uh, yeah. context. Um, for us, often the fabric is, has more structural, really, qualities than decorative. In what way? In the way that it does change the light mm. so fundamentally. So when we look at a fabric, it's not about its decorative qualities, its pattern or color in the first place, but how will it change the room altogether by virtue of filtering the light? Mm. And so the weave and the thickness and, you know, is, becomes, yes, yeah, becomes a lot more important. When I look at a movie, I think of it as shots and lighting as well, mm. um, which is obviously related to what I do. Um, it's very interesting to, I mean, I, I'm quite interested to know what what's that like to watch a movie where there is, uh, let's say, a, a home or an office, which may very well just be a set. Sure. Right? Yeah. But... Um, you made other times when you look at one of those sets and you think that there's no way that can actually happen. Well, that's the poetic license, isn't it? I mean, of the of the movie makers, and that's often inspiring mm. when you have those sets which are just fantastic yeah. uh, because they support the spirit of the movie. They don't have to be realistic, but they have to support the spirit of the movie, right? Uh, and so that's very inspiring and, and but it's equally good to watch a movie and not to notice the sets in particular which means that the movie also works because it just draws you into the story whatever has been displayed and it doesn't let your architect's mind come and interfere yeah. so I enjoy both moments of course there are movies where you say wow that's a great set and uh, you, you even look up who designed it or in theater as well uh, you know, even more so because it's more abstract and the means are, are more restricted. Mm. 
on a theater stage, but it's hugely inspiring. Uh, the lighting again, it, it comes back to that. Um, how, with, with how so little uh, worlds can be created on a, on a little stage like that. Yeah. And, it, and it's believable because it's poetically right. It's not realistic, but I had a client once, uh, still a client today, who came and wanted an interior done for an apartment in, in the city. Mm. And uh, we'd ask him, okay, what is, you know, what do you enjoy? What's your inspiration? Is there anything you can refer to which, which you think may be relevant for us to know about? And he came with the movie set. He said a particular movie, it had uh, Al Pacino in it. Uh, and the apartment of the protagonist, the, the character Al Pacino was playing, that was his inspiration. And it was an apartment where you could turn around. You were like from the kitchen to the living, to the dining, back to the kitchen. And somehow the client enjoyed that. And that was a great help because yeah. then you have, you know, an immediate starting point for you to start designing and, and, and getting uh, all kinds of wild ideas. Works very well. Yeah, and it's also great when you have that freedom to do, um, when you're given one interesting brief and then you have the freedom to go and Yeah, then you react to it, it no? and then uh, make it yeah. yourself, yeah. We talked about this in the pre-interview as well, um, that your wife is a partner at Vastrakala, um, which is, and uh, it's, they, they do some fabulous work that I've really enjoyed seeing in embroidery and textiles and fabrics, and you touched upon fabrics a little bit earlier. Um, so that must mean that the, the environment at home itself is a creative, you know, an atmosphere where creativity is allowed to foster. Um, how does being around someone who has a different type of creativity, how does that bounce off you and how do you bounce off her creativity and how does, it, how does that help being around creative people all the time? Well, do you feel to, like that has influenced yeah. the way you look at things? Possibly. It certainly helps you change perspectives, right? Because there's somebody whom you trust, yeah. whose perspective is available to you. Uh, and we share, of course, inspiration books and, and uh, all of that is interesting from, uh, from the, say, decorative arts and the history of that. And then there is the, uh, the architectural angle to it. Right. Uh, and yeah, so when, when we do get time to um, travel and look at things like that, mm. that's highly uh, inspiring to compare viewpoints and, uh, you know, certainly very, very pleasurable to, to have that. But then, of course, there is an everyday life where we don't have always time to, you know, <laughs> uh, there's not always time to delve into the depth of that. But even then, it's, it's good to have somebody who has, who can understand even the aspects of running a creative business and things like that. Yeah. Um, certainly helps in a, in a daily routine as well. Yeah, and it sort of gets internalized after a certain point, right? Where... Um, you start to understand another creative person's perspective. So you look at your own work through their eyes almost. And that, so, and that may help you, yeah, you know, exactly. do your own thing differently. Correct. Yeah. So it really helps to have, even if it's not someone you live with, but you know, creative peers, creative partners, collaborators, um, that's something to be encouraged, I would say. Mm, very important, yes.
It's a way to you know, catch a lot of mistakes that way. Yeah. You would not have seen yourself had you not looked at it from somebody else's So to somebody who is going to watch this interview they will um they'll know that you've been working around here for 20 years yeah. so and um, you've done a lot of work got a lot of recognition for it you and your firm and your team um over the course of time everyone has certain insecurities about about their work or about themselves right and it's easy to question your own decisions depending on how well it's gone but while you were going through all these things did you feel like you knew what you were doing did you feel like you knew you were doing the right thing what well, certainly from a let's call it the mundane or the, the you know the practical standpoint uh we were convinced that we're doing the right thing otherwise we wouldn't propose or we wouldn't have done what we've done mm. doesn't mean that there were no doubts on other levels yeah. right there were, of course you can doubt yourself very quickly and it can be disastrous if you start doing it too often <laughs> or too radically uh doubt yourself on uh you know on level of uh certain design aspects which very quickly touch up on the philosophical aspects as well you know are we is this building the right size should it not be smaller yeah uh is the, you know but that said the i think you have to have this practical conviction Yeah. that what you're doing is fundamentally is is the right thing for the project otherwise you'll just never get to you know take any decision if you let go of that conviction just the entire card house falls down yeah and so but do you think that applies to life decisions as well um, because i feel like that's uh, that's the the one aspect that a- anyone may have doubts about is did they take the right decision in your case perhaps it would be you now everything may have worked out but you know when you when someone moves from one country to another or one city to another or they change their careers entirely right you don't always know you have taken the right decision no so but um when you made your big moves did you feel like you knew exactly what you were in for I think I felt right about it in the moment or in that in that time span. Yeah. But I certainly did not know what I was getting into from a longer uh you know perspective mm. more into the future. When I moved to India I did not know what I would be getting into for the next 5 years, right? Yeah. But I felt very comfortable with it for the next 2-3 months and and from there it grew, right? So there is a continuity that way yeah. of feeling right about uh decisions and that applies to design as well i think you know it can it can sound sort of pretentious when you say i know what's good for this project but it's actually not it's, it's somebody has to ma- yeah. take that up somebody has to take it on their shoulders to say that yeah. we are doing this if this is your targeted outcome let's say um 
we designed a crematorium. And I find that's a pretty big task to decide how that should look yeah. for people who will be using it in very sad times of their lives to decide what that environment should look like seems to me a, a massive task. But somebody has to take it on and say, you know, let's work on it. And when we do our best, then we therefore know that we're doing the right thing. Yeah. And uh, if the public thinks it's bad or it's not successful, then we will see other crematoria propping up, which will look drastically different or you know, better or solve the problem in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think then you have a professional culture, right? Once that happens, then you have peers, like you said, yeah. uh, who will develop their take on it. And uh, you will then be able to um, have public debate about it. Yeah. And then the newspaper can report that this is, works well or doesn't work so well. And I think that's a good feedback uh, you know, criticism, constructive criticism for the profession at large, not just for one architect, for, for everybody to read. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, it's a good note to end the conversation when we're talking about you need to have your own, you need to have confidence in your own decisions mm -hmm. and also you need to be humble enough to, uh, to listen to what other people have to say and then see how you can improve your own way of yeah. going about it. Yeah, absolutely. And one needs to be interested in what others would, are doing or would be doing yeah. uh, in, a, in a similar situation. And I think that is uh, essentially how culture happens. Yeah. You know, it's, it, when we do our daily tasks, it doesn't feel like we're creating culture. Yeah. And we certainly don't pretend to be the great um, um, creators in that way. But all these small decisions from every day add up in the end to another little built piece of our public culture it becomes visual you can see it I can see it and we can use it and then um, it's there um, and I think that's part of the beauty of our job thank you very much for talking with me um, I've really enjoyed it um, I think for me as well to to talk about a lot of uh, concepts has been pretty nice and uh, I'm sure that someone who watches this will have a lot to gain from it thank you my pleasure well, that's our show for this week. You can find links to get in touch with my guests in the episode description below on YouTube. Or if you're listening to the audio podcast, just swipe or tap over the cover art. You can watch other full episodes and curated playlists at everythingcomestogether.com. Please subscribe to Srinath Pictures on YouTube. Or you can listen to the audio podcast by subscribing to Everything Comes Together on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and leave a five-star review. If you like this episode, please tell a friend about it and help get the word out about this show. The music for this podcast was composed by Ashray Harishankar from Escapist Music, post-production by Tiruvikraman Srinivasaraghavan, and production assistance by Abdul Jilani. Until we meet again with another fascinating guest, you can reach me on Instagram at Srinag or at everythingcomestogether.com. Have a good day.